begin our study in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to do something a little different. Normally, I go through a verse-by-verse through a, a book. It takes quite a long time. That's not what I'm going to do this evening in 2 Thessalonians, although we're going to, if time allows, we're going to look at the entire book of for 2 Thessalonians and study it in its context. 2 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote this book to clear up some confusion about the second coming of Christ. He, through writing 1 Thessalonians, was the uh, reason why he is now having to clear up some things, not because of necessarily what he wrote or not that he had written something that was confusing, but the church here at Thessalonica, as they studied the epistle of 1 Thessalonians, they came to some conclusions and they came to some, some thoughts that at any moment that, that Jesus Christ was coming, therefore they stopped working, they began to be idle and began to, to uh, allow some false teaching to come in about the second coming of Christ. And so Paul is writing this book. He's writing this to clear up some confusion about the second coming of Christ. And 1 Thessalonians talks much about the second coming of Christ. And we find a lot of our doctrine. We find the, the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We believe that uh, those that are dead, they're going to rise again. And those that are alive remain are going to rise and meet Christ in the clouds. Why do we believe that? Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it tells us that. And so much of our doctrine of end times, most of, most of our doctrine of, of the second coming, we can find is in Paul's epistle to first, to the, in 1 Thessalonians. And we, um, we find that the church here was confused. They were confused about the timing of Christ's return. And many, many at this time were going through great persecution. Now, that's very important as we look at this entire book, because that persecution is what was driving a lot of what the believer was feeling and believing. Paul was teaching them in 1 Thessalonians and in other epistles and other teachings that there was going to be great persecution that would come. Now, if you were to study where Paul, in Acts chapter number 18, I believe it is, uh, or Acts chapter number 17, Paul went uh, on a second missionary uh, journey, and he landed here in Thessalonica. And when he got there, he began to, he began to teach and began to preach, and many believed, the Bible says, but there was a great amount of people, Jews and Gentiles both, that were very offended and very upset with what Paul was, Paul was teaching. And they were so upset that great persecution came, and Paul and Silas had to leave here and had to depart in a hurry because of the persecution that the Christians uh, were facing, the, the new believers in Christ. And so Paul, knowing that the persecution was so great for him, understanding then because of that, that the persecution probably was still very difficult going against those believers there that were left. And so there was great persecution uh, uh, there in Thessalonica. They, they thought the day of the Lord must be imminent because of this great persecution and because of Paul's first letter, uh, as Paul spoke about the second coming. And so in light of this misunderstanding, many, many persisted, many of the believers, many of the followers of Christ, they persisted there in this city, in that church, became idle, began to do nothing. Whenever we study the Bible, it should be for more than just information. 
We ought to study to learn. We ought to study to grow. But as Paul taught and Paul wrote the epistles, what you would find with Paul, Paul was teaching for information, but he was also teaching for application. The Word of God ought to challenge us to do something for him. It's great to understand the second coming of Christ, just like the church here was understanding, but they weren't doing anything with that information. What they were simply doing was just sitting there waiting for Christ to come back. They were not being active in, in pursuing the gospel, in preaching the gospel. And so Paul is writing them because they become idle, they become disorderly as Christians, and with this, the excuse of waiting for Christ's return. And so what I want to do this evening is I want to look at uh, all three chapters and maybe, maybe just kind of outline and look at some of it for information, then look at the application that Paul is giving us here in this entire book here, the short book of three chapters. All right, so let's begin reading here in verse number one, Paul in Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timotheus, which is Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Now, that's important as we begin to study. Paul wrote to the, to the church at Corinth. The reason he wrote to the church at Corinth was he was writing them to correct some sinful things. They were, they were living in fornication. There was some, some uh, 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 physical, sexual sins that they were involved in, and they weren't living like Christ. And, they, and so Paul is writing to them to correct their lifestyle and how they were living. And you find that in other epistles where Paul wrote, some he writes to correct specific behavior. Paul is writing the church here, and he begins, he's going to correct some doctrinal things about the second coming of Christ and challenge them to live in end times. But what you find here, what Paul, Paul's first, his personal greeting is very kind and very compassionate toward those he's going to speak to. And Paul is going to correct some things. But his, 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 his way of correcting things, he's, he's, he's telling them that their faith that their faith is good and, and that their, their, their love for each other, he's commending them for that. He says in verse, verse 3, because that your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. And so what Paul is saying is just simply this, you're believing. What I told you, you're believing. You're not doubting that Jesus Christ is coming. You're not doubting who Christ is. You're not doubting what was taught to you. And you're also loving each other. And this is a great attribute of the church. And so we find first, as we were to look at the, the chapter number one, we find where Paul's personal greeting. Now, I want you to go to Acts chapter 18 with me this evening, if you would. I want to I look at Paul. He's writing this. He's writing this uh, uh letter, this epistle to this church. And we find, we find that Paul is in Acts chapter number 18. Paul is after these things in verse number one, these things, Paul departed from Athens and he came to Corinth. Paul is writing this letter, this epistle to the church and he's writing it from Corinth in Acts chapter 18 here. We find here, if you were to study this through, you'd find where Paul, uh, uh, Silas and, and Timothy come 
and they begin to uh, uh, minister there, and, and uh, they come from Macedonia in verse number five, and they come and they begin to minister and help Paul, just like the letter here states that Paul and Timothy and Titus are there, and they are the ones that are uh, putting this letter together to help them understand some misunderstandings from the first epistle uh, that was written by Paul. And so we find in chapter number 18, he's at Corinth. We find, we find that Silas is there. We find that, that Timothy is there. And um, this is happening. This letter is written to the church about a year after 1 Thessalonians was written. And so they received the first letter. They begin then to learn and study and, and uh, 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 go through that first epistle. And about a year's time passes when Paul begins to hear that what they're learning and what they're feeling and what they're understanding isn't correct about the second coming. And so then within a year, he's following up and he's writing them uh, to correct some things. And so from the first epistle to the second epistle, there's about a year difference. We find Paul, we find Timothy, and we find Silas. And they're here in Paul's personal greeting to them. If you were to just to look one chapter previous in Acts chapter 17, you would find where Paul on his second missionary journey is coming here to this city. Thessalonica, in verse number one, we find where he comes to this place. He goes like he always does. He goes to the synagogue. There in the synagogue, he begins to teach and preach Jesus Christ and salvation through Christ. In, in verse number two of chapter number 17, and Paul, as his manner was, went, into, went in unto them in three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And then we would find here in this chapter here is where the, uh, the, the, the people of the city got very offended. And then for the first 10 or so verses, you would find, uh, let's look in verse number 10, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas. And so we find, find there in verse number 10, they depart from this city. Paul then writes back to the city, uh, the first, first epistle, and then within a year after writing that, he follows up with the second. And so we find here, if we were to outline or to study through and get an understanding, a proper understanding of 2 Thessalonians, we find this. It's written by Paul. It's written at Corinth. It's written by Paul in the company of Silas and Timothy. It's written about a year after the first epistle was written, and it's simply written to clear up, to clear up a misunderstanding or some false understanding of the second coming of Christ. And so we find Paul is greeting them. He's greeting them very affectionately. He's commending them for their faith. He's commending them for their love for each other. And then he gets right into it here in chapter number one. And we find in verse number four, Paul says this, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience. And this is important. Look at this. For your patience and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So Paul is recognizing that they're going through great persecution, and he's recognizing that they're going through great tribulation. Remember, it's because of this great persecution and this tribulation he's going through, that, that the Christians are going through, that they believe that at any time, at that very moment, Jesus Christ, he's going to come again. But Paul is going to remind us this, that Christ, he told his disciples, his followers, that the world is going to hate you just like they hated Christ. And so from every generation, from every, from the first, first century church, every generation is going to for, uh, face some sort of persecution. 
The apostles were all killed. They, they were, they were uh, uh, killed for their faith, and many, many believers, matter of fact, there's a book on our book table out here, Fox's Book of Martyrs, that for generations it tells Christians and how they were murdered for their faith. David Gibbs this past Sunday morning had mentioned about, about uh, uh, how, how they would take and, and they would kill uh, uh, the children first. Then they would kill the, the moms and they'd kill the dads and then they'd kill the elders of the church in that order because of simply their faith in Christ. I was in Tunisia, South Africa several years ago and one of the, one of the things I saw there was the ruins of, a, of an ancient uh, a Roman um, uh, Colosseum. And you can still walk through that Colosseum and, and just to, to see the, this huge, huge facility and to realize this, that there were Christians that were killed in that very Colosseum for their faith. They allowed us to go underground. And so as we walked down underneath this tunnel, we came to the place where the cells were, where they would keep the Christians before they would bring them out to fight the gladiators or fight uh, uh, the, the animals, the wild animals would come out and just uh, uh, kill them. And we walked down and, and uh, it was, it was uh, just an eerie thing to walk through this tunnel, just through the earth here and, and realize and think that there were Christians that knelt there that prayed just before their death. You could see exactly where they were. And as we walked down through, they, we just continued to follow this tunnel. And by the time we came to the end, we came out of this tunnel and we were standing right in the center of this giant 50,000 seat Colosseum. And it hit me as I stood there, I thought to myself, how many Christians made that same very walk? And when they came out and they saw that sunlight like I saw, what they were going to face in just the next several minutes was death. Not because they've committed a crime. Not because they deserved it for something, some action that they've done. Not because they've broken a law, but simply because they would not denounce Jesus Christ. And that has gone on for generations. Even today, there's Christians that are being persecuted for their faith. We have, we have men like David Gibbs in, in the National Center of, of Life and Liberty and others like his father with the Christian Law Association that are standing in the gap and they are defending our rights as Christians here in this country. And in some areas in this, in this world, Christian values and Christian uh, principles, it's, it's, it's lost. That it's illegal for a Christian. It's illegal for a Christian to share their faith. And Tunisia, where I was, it was illegal for me as someone that was not Tunisian to, to share my faith with somebody there in that country. It would have gotten me expelled from the country and jailed just for simply giving out a Bible, giving out a track, or telling somebody about Jesus Christ. And so we find, we find that, that persecution has been there from the first generation Christian, from Christ into every generation. And Paul is, is, is challenging that Christian. He's helping them to persevere despite their trials. He's encouraging them to stay the course. He's encouraging them that even though persecution's coming, not to doubt, not to, not to, to forsake your faith, but to continue having faith and in increasing your faith to continue to go for the Lord. And so we find Paul, first we find Paul's uh, 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 greeting, a kind greeting toward the people, and then we find Paul challenging them to persevere. Then I want you to see in the same chapter, 
Paul in this very first chapter, this introduction chapter to this, we find that Paul in verse number five, he begins to say this, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And so now he's going to begin to talk about those that are going through persecution, what God is going to do to those that are giving the persecution. Because as a Christian, if it's, 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 it would be human nature to get discouraged. Could you imagine every day waking up and you're being challenged for your faith? I mean, every day you're, you're, you're uh, uh, maybe imprisoned, maybe, maybe you're going through some kind of trial. And, and back in these days, when you got saved, you were just isolated from your family as well. So you were isolated from everyone that you knew. You were isolated from your friendships. You might have been isolated from your occupation. You were isolated from, from making a living. And so your whole world has changed simply because you've trusted Christ as your Savior. And it would be easy for a Christian to walk away from that, to denounce Christ, just so that life would get better. But Paul is saying, don't, don't, don't take a step back. Continue to trust God. Even in your tribulation, even in your trials, trust God. And then he goes into verse number five, and he begins to tell us this message that Christ is going to deal with. He's going to deal with the wicked. He's going to vindicate the righteous. Those that endure, he's going to vindicate them, and he's going to punish the wicked. It's easy, again, it's easy for us as Christians to look around in the world and say, you know, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. And it seems like those that are not saved, it seems like they've got success. It seems like they have everything. It seems like there's no struggles. It seems like there's no problems. It seems like they're the ones that are getting the blessings, and I'm the one that's having to endure this persecution. And Paul is reminding, he's reminding the, the people here in verse number five, in verse number six, he says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. God is going to deal with those that cause the Christian trouble. And as, and verse number seven, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And so he's, He's helping them understand to stay with it. Don't get discouraged. We're living in a world that is anti-Christian. We're living in a world that's difficult. We're living in a world where we're suffering persecution. But he says, stay with it. God is going to bless those that endure, and he's going to judge those that are doing evil. Now, what we find, though, with Paul, and we would read through the end of this chapter, that we would find that it's not always going to happen here on this earth. It's not, it may not ever, the persecution for the believer, there were some that faced it, and that persecution is what caused their death. And so Paul is not saying to them, and this is what's important when he talks about end times, he's not saying that it might get better here on this earth. It may never get better. The persecution may never change. The tribulations may never go away. It might be difficult. It might be hard. You might face persecution for being a Christian. You might face that for the rest of your life. But the, remember as a Christian, our life isn't over here on this earth. 
And so Paul is trying to help the, 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 the church here to understand we can't just view life through the lenses of the day we're born here through the day that we die here upon this earth because for the Christian, this is just a small amount of time. We're not living for the temporal things. We're supposed to have our eyes upon Jesus Christ and we're living toward eternal things. And so Paul is helping them understand that Christ is going to vindicate the righteous, and he is going to punish the wicked. There is going to be a time where those that endure persecution receive a reward. They receive a crown. They receive something from the Lord, and the Lord is going to bless them. And there's going to be, there is going to be a white throne judgment where all those that have never trusted Jesus Christ, they're going to be judged. And so someone could live an evil life on this earth and think they get away with it. But what Paul is saying is you're never going to get away with it because you are going to stand before God someday. There's going to be an account given. And so we find here, and I want to give you three things here out of these seven or eight verses out of this last uh, uh, portion of this chapter that I believe this could help us. Number one is this, our problems... Our problems ought to help us look upward and help us look forward. Never should our problems cause us to look inward. Here the church is going through great persecution, going through great sorrow. And Paul is reminding them, he's commending them for their faith. He's commending them for their love one for another. And he's getting them to understand not to look inward. Not to look at all of your problems, not to internalize them all, not to throw a a pity party for yourself saying, you know, look at what I'm going through. Look what I'm enduring. I don't know if it's worth being a Christian. I don't know if it's if it's beneficial to be a follower of Christ, because look at everything I'm going through. And Paul is helping the Christian to look upward and look forward continue to keep your eyes on christ continue to keep your focus on the fact that jesus christ is coming again and what we endure here on this earth is just a temporary thing and so all of our problems all of our problems all of our trials all of our burdens all of our tribulations all of our persecutions we go through it ought to cause the christian to look upward and keep his eyes on christ secondly it ought to build strong character. A Christian ought to be different than a lost person. I mean, everything about them. Because of the way they live. The Christian in their neighborhood, in their workplace, in their home, in their community, in every aspect of their life, they ought to be different than a lost person because what's happening through this persecution, through this, these trials that they're facing, it ought to build character in the life of a Christian. And then thirdly, thirdly, he helps us understand that it ought to help us be sensitive to others who are struggling as well. Persecution ought to help us. Trials ought to help us be sensitive. And that's why Paul is commending this church that your faith is growing and that your love is abounding because you are understanding the struggles you're going through. A Christian that goes through struggles ought to look at that as an opportunity to understand how somebody else is going through a struggle to to help them. We should be constantly as Christians looking to help somebody else. Yesterday, last evening, I 
stood at a funeral service for uh, uh, Connie Hill's husband, Lee. And unfortunately, unfortunately, in the last, boy, it just seems like we've had a lot of funerals of people in our church and family members of, of uh, people. It just, it just seems like a lot of people. And I was sitting there and I listened to, to Connie's three grandchildren or two of the grandchildren get up and give a testimony. And they were moved. They were, they were, they were, they were you could tell, just upset. They were moved. They gave their testimonies and they could just tell how much they were going to miss their grandfather. And there was something, something that the, the grandson said that just really caught my attention. He said this, when I didn't have a father... You were there for me. I could just sense that he was 18 years old, and I just sensed there was a great relationship there, and he was going to deeply miss his grandfather. It was hard for him. In every funeral I've been to for the last 10 years or so, 10 years will be this year, every funeral I sit there and I see people hurting, it always brings me back as I was sitting there and having to stand to preach my own father's funeral. And you understand, you sympathize, you feel the hurt. It causes me to think about three years ago when I sat and had to sit next to my wife as they buried her brother. And when you go through struggles, it ought to cause the Christian to be sympathetic and to want and desire to minister to those that are struggling. We, um, <clears throat> when, I, when I pastored down south, Everybody hugs you. I mean, they don't, they, even if they don't like you, they hug you down south. They, uh, they hug you, and then they put the knife, you know, right there while they're hugging you. But everybody hugs each other. So we, we got down south, and, and um, when I passed through down there, it was like this hug fest in the lobby. I mean, everybody's hugging each other. And, and uh, so I came up, back up north here, and I just make it a habit. I put my arm around somebody. I hug somebody. And... and um, uh, last last night I was there with with Connie and I really Connie just with her physical pain that she was going through and just the emotion of her family and afterwards I went up to Connie and I hugged her and and then I I, I leaned in real close and I gave her a, a kiss right on her on her uh, forehead last evening and um, after I gave her a kiss on her forehead I said what did I just do I just kissed this lady right in front of my wife and she just kind of looked at me and I said, I'm sorry, Connie. She says, that's okay, Pastor. You could, you could kiss me on my forehead anytime you'd like, you know. I don't go around kissing ladies on their foreheads. But when you're there and you're watching somebody hurt, when you're listening to somebody's pain, sometimes God allows persecution or struggle in your life and if you internalize it and you say woe is me why is this happening to me why do I have to deal with this why is my life the way it is you will miss out on the opportunity at times to minister to somebody else that's going through a struggle, that's going through persecution, because that, that trial you're going through, at times God puts you in it so that you can minister to somebody else. And the only way for us to see that is to keep our eyes on the eternal. 
So that when we get into persecution, when we get into trials, when we get into difficulties, we don't look at it and think this is it. How I feel today is how I'm going to feel forever. The suffering I'm dealing with today is how I'm going to feel forever. No, what you're feeling is only going to be temporary because those that are saved, they are going to have the joy of their salvation for all of eternity. What we're going through is just for a short period of time. And Paul says, stay with it. Hang in there. Don't quit. Let your faith increase and minister to someone else as you're going through suffering. It's important. And so Paul mentions, he mentions two things, two areas of comfort here. One, one is this. We can be comforted in knowing that our sufferings strengthen us. They say this, when God seeks to use a man or a woman in their life, he brings them through great suffering. Now, the reality is this. None of us want to go through suffering. None of us want to go through hurt. Nobody wakes up. We looked at this in, 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 as we studied the, the book of Peter. We don't wake up and say, Lord, give me some suffering today. But the reality is this. God uses that when he wants to use somebody great for him. Christ went through suffering when he went to the cross so that we could have salvation. And so we find, we find this, that we can be comforted in knowing that our suffering strengthens us. And secondly, this, we can take comfort in knowing that one day everyone will stand before God. Everyone will. A saved person is going to stand before God, and an unsaved person is going to stand before God. Two separate times, those that are saved, they're going to stand before God. When, when, Christ, when Christ comes back for his church, the dead in Christ, he tells us this in 1 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ, is going to, they're going to rise, and we which are alive and remain are going to meet him in the clouds to be with him forever. Never from that point forward will we ever be separated from Christ. There will be a, a judgment seat of Christ that we will stand before Christ, and we will answer for how we live this Christian life. There's going to be, there is, then we go from there, we go in the, the tribulation begins, then we go into the thousand year reign of Christ, and then what happens is there's going to be a great white throne judgment where all those that are lost are going to stand before Christ, they're going to stand and they're going to be judged. Every single person is, no one's going to get away with it. You might think you're going to get away with it here on this earth. A lost person might think they're getting away with it, but what they must, every person must understand, there is eternity for everybody. For some that know Christ, it's going to be heaven. For those that do, know, know, do not know Christ, it's going to be eternity separated from God. There will be punishment for wrongdoing here upon this earth. And so Paul, Paul mentions this. We realize this. Right is going to be, uh, a wrong is going to be righted. Judgment is going to be pronounced and evil is going to be terminated. There is going to be a time when there is no evil. Won't that be a wonderful thing? It will be just like when Adam and Eve walked through the garden with God himself where there was no sin, there was no evil. That's going to be when we are there with Christ, there is going to be a time where we are not going to have to face evil. Nobody's going to wake up and wonder, are they sick today? Are they, do they have cancer today? Is someone going to die today? Nobody's going to have to deal with that because we're going to be with Christ. There's going to be an end to evil. I want you to go into chapter number two. I need to hurry here. Chapter number two, we find he goes then in chapter one, he tells us who he is. 
He tells them to persevere and he, and he instructs them, he instructs them that God is going to avenge the right. He's going to judge those that are evil. And then he gets into verse number one of chapter number two, and he says this, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. All right, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He now, he mentions again, now he's going to set them straight here in second Thessalonians, what they misunderstood in first Thessalonians, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. What he's saying is this, there is going to be the day of the Lord is coming. Jesus Christ is coming. The church is going to be raptured. What he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter number four, it is correct. He's not changing that. The Lord, there is going to be the day of the Lord. It's happening. And so one, number one, is we ought to take comfort in that knowing it's truth. It's not going to change. Everything else in the world may seem like it's going to change, but Jesus Christ, he's coming again. The day of the Lord is coming. And then he says in verse number two that we're not to be shaken, we're not to be, be troubled. Don't let that thought trouble you. And what's happening is this. The church here, they, were, they knew he was coming. They believed he was coming. That's why he commended them on their faith. But what they were doing is they were being troubled. They were concerned. Instead of preparing and working for this day of the Lord, instead they were concerned because of the persecution. And they began just to wait, to hide out and wait, waiting for the Lord to save them from all of the persecution that was going on. They weren't looking forward to this as I'm going to see Jesus again. They were looking for him as to save them from the life, from the persecution, from the troubles that they were having here on this earth. And so he's encouraging them that he's coming again, but not to let this trouble you, not to let this shake you in your mind, but there's a way that we must live. And then he goes into verse number three, he says this, let no man deceive you by any means. For that the day shall not come except there come a falling away first. So Paul is, in chapter number two, he reminds them the day of the Lord is coming, first of all. And then second of all, he gets into this. He says there's some events that must first occur. And so there are some things that have to happen for the Lord to return. And he begins to outline those things here in number three. He says there's going to be a great falling away. That man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What he begins to describe is this, is the Antichrist. He begins to say this, there's going to be the son of perdition, he is going to come, and he is going to exalt himself above God. He's going to sit in the temple. Now, we could take this prophecy, and I'm studying through, and we're going to do an 11 or 12-week series on Sunday mornings about end-time prophecy, and we're going to see how all of those things fit, where the Antichrist fits, and what he's going to do. He's going to come and, 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 and tell Israel that he's going to bring peace to Israel, and, and he's going to sit there in the temple, and, and he's going to exalt himself above God. He's going to bring peace, but it's going to be false peace. He's a great deceiver. He's not going to bring peace to Israel. He's going to trick Israel. In the last three and a half years, he's going to, get, going to go against Israel. And the great tribulation is going to happen the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And we find, we find here that Paul is describing the Antichrist here, that he's the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God. 
It says in verse number five, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know that withhold that he might be revealed in his time. In verse number seven, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And so Paul is giving them, he's telling them to be ready because of the persecution. The persecution is there. But just because you're going through persecution now, it doesn't mean that the Antichrist is there. Persecution exists in every generation of Christians. It will come greatly to Israel here with the Antichrist, but he's saying, to, he's saying persecution is going to come, but the Antichrist is going to come. The Antichrist is going to exalt himself above God. The Antichrist is going to sit there in the temple. And he says this in verse number eight, and then shall that wicked be revealed. Do you see that word wicked there? That word wicked in your Bible, it should be capitalized. He's not talking generically about wicked being revealed just all wickedness, all evil. He's speaking of a specific person. Do you see that there? That wicked, he's calling this specific person, the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And he begins to tell us the, about the Antichrist. But you know what he tells us here? He tells us this in verse, verse number uh, 10. And, and with all, uh, I'm sorry, in verse number nine, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, he begins to tell us who that, who that is going to be and how he's going to behave. And so he begins to tell us in chapter number two these events that are going to occur here in the tribulation. And then he tells the believer in verse number 13, look with me there. He says this, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. And hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. What Paul is doing is Paul is saying, the day of the Lord, it is coming. These events are going to take place that are going to reveal that day of the Lord is coming. And he says that I want you to stand fast, though. Don't sit idly by and just wait for these events to happen, but to stand fast. Listen, believe what you've been taught. Don't begin to doubt when persecution and trials come. Don't begin to doubt what you've been taught. But it's time as the day of the Lord approaches, it's time for the Christian, if any time ever, to stand even greater stand fast and don't give in because at this time it's going to be so easy for Christians to quit there'll be a great falling away and Paul is challenging them to stand firm in the truth and what is the truth the truth is the word of God and that's what Paul is challenging to stand upon because we're going to live in a day where everything where right is going to be wrong and wrong is going to be right. I just, I just heard on a story today and, 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 and searched in a little bit more. There are some, there are some, uh, uh, landowners 
in, in, in they, they, own, they own land and they need to expand on their land. But the government out west, uh, I believe this might have been Washington, they won't allow them to build on their land. Brother Kaiser, some you have land and your business is booming and you go ready to build. And the government says you can't build because there are gophers that are living on your land that have babies. And they said this, now we will let you build on this land if you pay $3 million so that we could have a gopher farm on these 70 some acres someplace else. It's the same government that will not give a foreign country aid unless they abort their babies. Think about that. Save the gophers, kill the children. I mean, where's the logic there? We're going to live in a day where logic is thrown out of the window. We're going to live in a day because we're going to, we're going to live in a society and it's going to get there. And I believe it's getting there where, where common sense or, or Christian values, you're looked at like you're crazy if you have Christian values. If you believe, if you believe in, in a marriage is between a man and a woman, if you believe that, you're the one that's narrow-minded. If you believe that you can decide whatever you want to be, and then you choose. If you want that, that's okay. If you oppose that, you're narrow-minded. If you believe that there's a God, you can believe, you can believe that we just formed from a great bang theory and, and, and slime crawled up on the, on the, on the, on the uh, ground from the ocean and, and we just evolved and now we are here this way. If you believe that, it's okay. But if you believe that God, in the beginning, God created, then you're narrow-minded and something's wrong with you. And we're going to live and it's going to get worse and worse and worse as the day of the Lord approaches where it almost will feel like the person that is, is wanting to do right, they're going out of their mind crazy. What's wrong with this world? And what Paul is saying, stand fast on truth. That's why we can't let our emotions, that's why we can't let our feelings, that's why we can't let what we think from day to day dictate how we live. We must stand fast on the Word of God. If the Word of God says it, it doesn't change from day to day. If the Word of God says it, we build our lives upon it. We build our families upon it. We build our, uh, our, our, our culture upon it. What we do, we build our church upon it. If the Word of God says it, it never changes. And that's why Paul says, stand fast on the word. Stand fast on truth. Because today I might think or feel this is okay, only to find tomorrow what I was feeling yesterday is wrong. But anything the Bible says, no matter how I feel, is always right. It's always right. And so he says, stand firm. Stand firm. As the day of the Lord approaches, as, the, as evil goes out of control, Stay focused on the Word of God. Don't think, Christian, that it's easier for you to quit. 
Don't think, Christian, it's easier for you just to step back and let everything happen the way it's going to happen. No, if anything, we're to stand in society. We need parents that'll stand for for moral principles. We need families that'll raise their kids upon the word of God. We need families that, uh, husbands and wives, that says, for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We need families as sin is tempting us, as the world says it's okay. We need families that say, I'll stand on truth, and I can only find truth on God's word. Can't find it anyplace else. Can't find it. And then lastly, here in this chapter, we find he helps us understand, in verse number 16, he says, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father which hath loved us, hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. You see that? Comfort your hearts. I like this word, establish you in every good word and work. Paul, to close chapter number two, he says this, receive God's encouragement and his hope. Don't look at this world. Don't look at this world and get discouraged and think that God doesn't care because of the actions of evil men. God does care. God does give us hope. God does give us comfort. God does give us everlasting consultation. He gives us, he gives us uh, salvation. Don't ever lose sight of what Christ gives. No matter what you find yourself in, no matter what persecution you find yourself in, no matter what trial you find yourself in, don't forget that God still blesses. God is still good. God is still wanting to to show favor to his children. I've got a few girls, and and I found this with our girls. The older they get, sometimes the moodier they get. Am I the only one like that or others? So I said not long ago, I said, I want to do something with with you girls. Now, I could just say that, and Chloe gets excited. Yeah, let's go do something. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. Let's go do it. Most days... Lily wants to do it. Don't have to tell her what it is. Kenzie, she still loves it. But I got another daughter. I won't mention her name. Sometimes she's not as excited as the other three. If I say, hey, let's go do something, she wants to know what is it. What are we doing? Oh, it's going to be fun. So I took the three out, and Kaylee, I wasn't going to mention her name. Um, One of our girls didn't want to go. And so we got in the car. We went. We went to Cold Stone. We got ice cream. We came back, the girls were all excited, and Kaylee was upset. I said, you could have had it. I was giving it to you. I didn't stop you from getting the, the, the ice cream. You chose not to receive it because you didn't want it. It was there. The others received it and had it all over their face and all over their shirt. And I got in trouble because it was all over their shirt. They loved it and they received it. I was giving it as their father, but not all of them received it. Here, we understand something about God. God is giving. He is giving hope. He's giving. He's giving. He's loving us. He's giving us comfort. He's telling us to establish ourselves. He can give peace through every trial. He can give peace through every tribulation. He can give us hope no matter what's happening in our life. But we have to receive that if we're going to get it. 
If we don't receive it, it's not because God's not offering it. It's because we choose not to accept it. So Paul is helping us understand the day of the Lord is coming. Let's be prepared. Certain events are going to take place that are going to come. And as those events are unfolding, stand firm. I get excited. I, 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 um, I see the things that are happening. I'm studying right now, and I've been studying for about a month and a half for this series that we're going to begin on Sunday mornings after our spring campaign. And as I'm studying it, then I watch the news, and they say this is happening. I think this is incredible. It's incredible. The events that are all unfolding around this world, it's incredible to watch as a Christian. It's exciting to watch as a Christian. You know why? It reminds us that Jesus Christ is coming, but it's also challenging to us as a Christian because there's great work to do. We can't just sit back idle as the church here was sitting back idle. Well, I'll just work my job. I'll just raise my family. I'll just go through life. As long as everything here I've got under control, I'm good. No, 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 no. There's people dying without Jesus Christ. There's work for a Christian to do. Yes, trials are going to come, but they're not to keep us from doing the work. Yes, Jesus Christ is coming back, but that's not to keep us on the sidelines just waiting for him to come. It ought to cause us to do something with our salvation, and that's go tell others about Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was telling the church to do. Don't just sit back and wait for him to come. Be busy so that when he comes, we're found faithful and we're ready. We're ready. 